0: Hey everybody and welcome to iFreaks. This week on our panel we have Mike Holt. Hello everyone. James Zuber. Hey everybody. I'm Andrew Madsen. And this week we have a guest. Our guest is Donnie Walls. Donnie, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Donnie, um, iOS developer for Disney streaming services. And um, yeah, it's currently nighttime for me. So that's pretty cool.
2: Excited to be on the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io.
0: Thanks. So we thought we would talk to you a little bit about a subject that you actually spoke on at TriSwift in Tokyo earlier this year, and I was lucky enough to be there speaking as well. And... Uh, heard your talk and, and also agreed with it, which was great. Um, why don't you tell us what that talks about?
1: Sure. Um, so my talk was about core data. It was titled in defense of core data because, um, core data has a horrible reputation, especially with developers that have tried it like five, six, seven years ago, or new developers who, you know, Google core data and find out that. Anything except Cordata should be better for them to use. And I kind of disagree with that sentiment. So I, in my talk I made the case that Apple made tons of changes to Core Data in the past couple of uh, past couple of years. It has improved a lot. It's become a lot easier to use. And um, yeah, my goal in the talk was really to just convince people to give it another go using some simple examples, some setup code. And um, I think it was pretty effective. I got a lot of responses from people that either gave Core Data another try or decided that Core Data wasn't as bad as they thought it was. So that was really cool.
0: Well, so before we defend it, let's talk about why it needs defending. Um, what are some things that people call out as, you know, bad things about Core Data?
1: So some of the arguments I've had from people is that it's it's just too complex for basically anything, um, people say that it has bad performance or that there's so much in involved that it's unusable or, um, you know, that it's really impossible to do any multi-threading with it to have multiple contexts going on, that it's crashing all the time. Um, yeah, really just those kinds of things that are not necessarily completely false, it's just, it's easy to run into some pitfalls if you don't take the time to understand the framework.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the one I hear come up the most frequently is the the multi-threading thing. And I've, so I, for context, I started writing core data in 2005, which is when it came out in Mac OS 10.4. And I've used it in almost every app I've ever shipped since then. So, you know, it's going on 15 years of me using it. And I feel like I, know a lot about it um, <laughs> but I think one of the things that you, you kind of mentioned this, but that one of the things that people miss is that it has changed a lot, and it's funny because a lot of the people that don't like it came in you know after it had changed a lot since I started using it, like when I started using it, there was no support for migrations period if you wanted to do a migration, you were on your own there was no no core data API for it whatsoever um, and there was no support for multithreading beyond just the rule of hey don't you know, create separate managed object contexts and confine them to their own threads. And this is before GCD. So it wasn't even queues. It was just make sure you don't use this on multiple threads kind of thing. Um, and, and, and th- this is part of the, the, the thrust of your talk, which is, you know, if you tried core data six, seven, eight years ago, a lot has changed since then. And it's better now. Um, walk us through a few of the things that have gotten better in the last, you know, I think iOS 10 was really the, the last major update, you know, with lots of new stuff, but How is it better now?
1: So, yeah, iOS 10 was a huge milestone. Um, They introduced the NS persistent container there. So one big thing is that instead of having 20, maybe 30 lines of setup code for your core data stack, it's not just a couple of lines for a simple stack. Um, If you want to do something more complex or custom, it's a couple more lines. So within like 10 lines of code, you can, have a pretty custom, tailor-made core data stack that has everything you need. And then in terms of the the multi-threading, is instead of having to manage, um, like in the past, you would have to make your root context, basically, which is your context that would be on the main thread, the one that you would use for all your UI work. And below that, you could maybe balance a couple of child contexts and they would have this parent-child relationship. When something changes in the child, you would have to merge it into the parent, which, you know, it's a lot of steps, so obviously a lot of mistakes were made there. And since iOS 10 with and it's persistent container, uh, all you need to do now is just ask the persistent container for a new child context or a new background context, or even just tell it to perform work in the background, and it will use its own context. And you don't need to worry about like, how does this merge back into the parent because the persistent container does all that for you. And you also mentioned uh, migrations just now. And when I just started doing Core Data, I had to do these migrations and be very mindful of them. But ever since, I believe it's also iOS 10, um, I can't remember the last time I had to do a migration because Core Data can just infer everything on its own as long as the changes are simple enough. Um, And yeah, I think that really kind of sums up some of the more significant, easy to notice changes. There's a lot more changes under the hood, but I think these two are good to start with, just the amount of boilerplate and the multi-threading, and actually also the migrations, so three things.
0: Yeah, I wanna dig in a little bit on the the migrations thing. This is something I actually didn't realize had changed. I don't feel like Apple did a super great job of advertising that they had made a change there. The change is actually not that Core Data can now infer migrations. It's been able to do that for a long time using something called lightweight migration. The change now is that you don't have to create a separate model version. You can just up, update your model directly, the same, same version you've always been using without having to create a new version and set it as the current one. And the reason that works now is because Core Data actually stores uh, a compiled down version of your model in the store that it creates when it saves, you know, to to the database. So when it loads up an old store, it knows what the model schema is without you including that in your app. Um, But that is pretty nice because it means you, for simple changes and, you know, incremental changes, you just don't even have to think about migration anymore. It just kind of is almost like it's invisible. It just works.
3: So what version of iOS or in Mac OS did this, did this happen? iOS
0: 10, uh, which is Mac, which coincides with Mac OS, 10.12, I think.
3: OK. And like what are some examples of some lightweight migrations that you don't have to deal with? Any, any changes?
1: So one simple one would be adding a property, for instance, um, either one that's optional or a non-optional one that has a default value. Uh, Like the path to get there has to be really simple. So if you would make, if you would add a non-optional property without a default value, Cordata would not be able to, you know, migrate on its own because it wouldn't know what to use as default value for that field. So like adding some simple Boolean that defaults to false, you don't need to make a new version for that. Cordata will do it for you. Um, Also just removing properties, for instance. It's also very simple. I think renaming would cause it some trouble, yeah for renaming you would need to step in and at least make a version, probably a migration
0: but yeah, so that that's actually not true. you can rename either an entity or a property and it's fine. Where you'll get into trouble is if you change enough that core data can't figure out what renamed you know like if you rename an entity and change all of its properties, it's gonna be hard for core data to figure out that they're the same thing um <laughs> but if but if you it, it, for for simple renames, you're fine. If you if you so if you search the documentation for lightweight migration, you'll actually find a, a list of everything that you can do. Um, Donnie pretty much covered them, but um, basically, the, the the changes all make, the things that you're allowed to do all make sense. There are things that you could do that you know core data can easily tell how to how to migrate to. So adding a new attribute as long as it has a default value or is optional. Removing an attribute, it knows it should just delete that data. If you have a non-optional attribute that becomes optional, well, that's fine. If you have an optional attribute that becomes non-optional, and you define a default value, then Core Data knows what to do with that. You can do a rename. There are a few other things, um, like around relationships and adding new entities and and such. But there are also there are also more complex changes that you cannot expect Core Data to just figure out for you. So
1: i had not actually tried the rename thing it's pretty cool that it can infer that i was not expecting that
0: i i actually just looked up the documentation and i had kind of forgotten about this but you actually set a rename identifier ah, okay so then okay. so you tell it um yeah you tell it you give it a sort of a canonical name that that is okay. the between versions that's
1: that works so it's pretty much automatic
0: Yeah. Still still cool though. Like you you know you have to add that rename identifier, but you still only have to edit your model. You're not having to create a migration map or anything like that.
1: Really cool. Yeah. So that that is one of the changes that I really do love is that you have to worry much less about changing or you know incrementally building out your data model as your app grows. Okay, is
3: functionality just built right in? Like do we have to do anything to enable this?
1: Just make sure you target iOS 10 and above.
3: Very cool. What are some examples of migrations that will not work? Like what's the line where you have to do it yourself?
1: So one migration that I'm always very wary of is like adding a new value that just doesn't have a default property, but you do need it to be there. Um, Because that one obviously, you know, Cordata cannot magically materialize values that make sense. So that is definitely the biggest one for me that I would say it's just impossible to do. Uh, And yeah, if you're just, if you wanna like change all your relationships, like move everything everywhere and just refactor your whole data model, um, you better be prepared to write a migration for that because data is well very good at inferring everything and understanding the migration path it's also quite limited
0: yeah so i think other another example would be splitting one entity into two which you sometimes want to do um you can't really do that uh you can't merge you couldn't merge two entities into one um anything that requires you to to do transformation on the data itself so you know you for example you have a name or a first name and last name field and you want to Combine those into a single name field, um, or vice versa. Uh, you can do that with core data migration, um, but you can't do. It can't figure that out for you. So you have you can't use the automatic migra- migration if you're doing things that transform the data that was stored in the old store. Uh, I feel like we could do a whole show about um, core data migration because there are actually three levels. There's automatic migration. There's using a migration map, which is still just a file that you create. And then there's doing fully custom migration where you subclass a bunch of classes that are part of the migration machinery and write your own code to do the migration.
1: Yeah, for sure. And also like strategies for how to migrate safely or properly. Um, I haven't done much of that in core data, but I remember from doing SQL migrations is that doing stuff in the wrong order, if you're going to go to manual route can be, pretty bad. She start deleting stuff before everything copied it over or, you know, just doing things in the wrong order. So yeah, definitely a topic that can be talked about for a long time.
0: Let's talk about some of the other changes you mentioned. And I think maybe the biggest one is the addition of NS persistent container. So what, what does that buy you?
1: So it, it buys a couple of things. One of them is just easy creation of your stack. Um, you just tell it, Basically, in its most basic form, you just tell it like this is the name of my, you know, my SQLite file or my Xcode data model file, and you just tell it to load the persistent stores. You get a callback closure, and in there, everything is done for you already. So at that point, you're 100% sure that your store is loaded and ready to go. Uh, it also gives you a nice managed object context called the view context, which is a context that does all of its work on the main queue uh, or you know the main thread. Uh, so that one is used for like, getting objects into your UI. Uh, if you would do a query for managed objects that you want to show in the table view, maybe combine that with NSFetchResultsController, you would definitely want to use the view context for that. Um, so, the NS persistent container also buys you um, easy creation of uh, background or child contexts. So, you can quickly get a reference to a managed object context that does all of the work that it's supposed to do on the background. And then the persistence container will take care of merging the changes you make there back into the view context. So, that's really nice. And the third thing, that I think is really nice about it is that it also gives you a simple perform on a background method, um, which you know any code you pass in there it will run on a managed object context in the background. So you don't even have to worry about keeping track of the context, or you don't even have to worry about making sure everything's on the correct thread, uh, because all the code you pass into this perform in the background closure will be performed on the correct um, thread. So it's, it just takes away a lot of your headaches and gives you some cool features.
0: I'm trying not to talk to, too much. Core data is kind of my thing. So um, I'm, I, but anyway, I'm not trying to crowd you out, Mike and James. Um, I think that w- w- what you mentioned around multi-threading is really, it, it, you know, it's it, it seems subtle, but it actually makes multi-threading even easier in core data. I know that one of the things that um, has kind of come up in the community uh, before this change is like what 's the best um, what 's the best architecture for multiple managed object contexts so should i should I use parent child context should I use sibling managed object context should they share a persistent store coordinator or should they have their own and there are trade offs involved in each of those. And I'm not saying that those trade-offs don't still exist or that there's not still room potentially for different architectures, um, in, in rare cases, but NS persistent container kind of abstracts that all the way. And you just don't have to worry about it. You get the, the view context, the main thread context free. If you want to create new background context, there's just a function to do that. And if, and you don't even really need to do that if you just want to do some simple work on the background, you, you use perform in background and, and there you go. So it frees you up from a lot of that thinking about how to structure your core data stack, especially when you are doing multi-threading with multiple contexts um, and means you're writing less code that's bug prone, but there's also just less cognitive overhead. So I think it's, I think that's, that's that's actually pretty significant.
1: Yeah, for sure. I've also thought though that like, because it becomes easier uh, when we started using core data in the team that I work in, um, because it was so easy, people were not really aware of these threading limitations, so it was very easy to skip the bounds of threads and pass objects into other places. Uh, so we did had end up kind of having to make sure that we didn't do that too much um, but yeah, all in all, once you realize that, and even when you turn on the um, strict thread checking in Xcode, you have like a, an option in your schema. Um, I don't know the argument on the top of my head, but it basically will crash your app anytime you encounter a threading violation in Core Data. So it's really nice. Like Even though it's a lot easier, you can still like, safeguard against mistakes using that argument. Um, so, yeah, we use that a lot to make sure that we don't accidentally cross thread boundaries because, as you may know, um, Core data is supposed to kind of crash or act weird, but it will often not do that until you're shipping your app or, you know, shipping beta releases.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, it's not as strict as you would want it to be. When you make a mistake, yeah, sometimes it's just is flaky. Um, similar, similar to how if you use UIKit on the background, in the background, you don't necessarily get a great, you know, crash or error message or anything.
1: Yeah, sometimes you just want the thing to crash on you super hard. Be like, hey, you're doing this completely wrong. Just boom, here's a crash. Uh, instead of just, yeah, like I said, it'll be flaky and act weird. That makes a lot of sense. So
3: within the past three or four months, I, I got a chance to hack on a core data project pretty heavily. And before that, I was on team, just you don't need core data for most apps. And I'll, I'll even stand by that. Most of the apps that I've worked with just didn't need it. Um, but this app yeah, used it a little bit and I got a chance to dig into actually see how it works and and I ended up like I'm liking it. Like anytime something crashed, it was it was my fault I had done something wrong. Um so I figured that out and I got to, came to appreciate the um the way the coordinated way of doing things and it's pretty elegant and I enjoyed it. But I think one of the Things that cause people to to run away from it is they don't really understand how to set up the patterns. So maybe if you could, you know, talk about um, let's say you're doing um, you've got your you know UI and you're doing a network request that comes back in a background thread. Um, how do you how do you get that data to your UI if you can't go just you know use the same object across threads? Like how does how do you how does it work setting that up and getting it all all to happen? Can you walk us through that?
1: yeah sure. Um, so in an ideal world, um, so let's say once you have everything parsed and stored, you're going to put it like in a table view or a collection view, right? Um, so if your data comes in on a background thread. you tell the persistent container to perform work in the background either by getting a background context or using the the convenience uh, closure on the persistent container. You process your data, you import it into the data store. And then the Persistent Container will merge that to the view context. Now, if you want to render stuff from core data, like if you have your fetch request, and those results are something you want to have in a table or in a collection view, you can use NS Results Controller, which is a really nice wrapper um, around a whole mechanism between getting a fetch request, then observing changes in a certain managed object context, like inserts or delete or objects that move in your data set. And it will then tell you like which index paths changed. So you would use that to drive your collection view and tell it what to change. Uh, so to summarize, you would get your data on the background thread, process it there, save it, and then use an results controller to observe uh, a certain predicate that will fetch your data. And because of the persistent container, everything will just magically react to changes in the data store. So your UI will just update using batch updates uh, on a collection view or a table view. Or in uh, I believe iOS 13 has a sort of a diffable collection data source. That fetch results controller also supports now, so you can even use the all new APIs with Core Data.
3: Okay, is the fetch results controller is that like a based on a table view controller, or is that its own thing?
1: It's its own thing. So what it does is you give it a fetch request with a predicate. Uh, a predicate is just a filter for a set. So let's say you have a list of cool places you want to visit. You could be like, give me all places in some country or whatever. And if you get a result set from that, you're probably familiar with that flow of retrieving data. And then if you want that to be like reactive, to react to changes, you would pass that fetch request to a fetch results controller, which is just going to observe changes in the managed object context that you pass to it. And then use your fetch request to see like, hey, so, okay, so this change, this object is new in the data set, this object moves from index path this to that, and it will just call back with the changes and you take those changes and you apply them to your own table view or collection view or really anything else if you want to, but they seem to be really made to cooperate with table views and collection views.
4: Yeah, so could you have that fetch controller be your table views delegate, for instance?
1: Not really. You would still have to write some glue code to make them play nice with each other. But it's almost a one-to-one like translation that you would have to.
0: Yeah, it's for most for common fetch results controller use cases. I feel like it's. Eh, more or less like boilerplate like and 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 one line you know like your self-road index path gets really simple because you just pull your model object out of the fetch results controller and it it has sort of a corresponding object for index path sort of method i do want to point out uh, as the resident mac developer that on the mac we have ns array controller which has been core data aware ever since core data came out and actually is Similar to Fetch Results Controller, but significantly more powerful. It's designed for use with Cocoa bindings, but you don't really have to use it with Cocoa bindings. And it does everything that Fetch Results Controller does, and more. Um, well, except it doesn't do ca- it doesn't cache its data sets. But I've never really needed that in persistence. Fe- or in, sorry, in Fetch Results Controller. Um, I definitely have to say that using Fetch Results Controller kind of makes the whole Core Data equation nicer. Um, specifically because it handles the, oh, I just, you know, my model layer just created some new data after a network fetch. I need to somehow tell the UI to update. It does that part for you.
1: Yeah, for sure, and especially in iOS 13, I haven't had a chance to to play with this bit, but uh, fetch results controller now also supports the diffable data source. So, I don't think currently you have to implement this boilerplate bit or you say like take all the insert changes and apply them to the collection view, take all the move changes and apply them, et etc. Uh, I believe now you can just take like the diffable data source thing and just apply it to your collection view or and have it update on its own and figure out what goes where, which is really powerful, uh, which makes. Fetch results controller even nicer and also the whole core data experience just that much better than anything else out there, I think.
4: Okay. Now, uh, uh, just for fun here, um, I'm curious what you guys think the future of core data is. I, w- I want to hear some speculation. <laughs> I mean, with, with Swift UI coming in and replacing UIKit, do you think Apple's going to uh, kind of do the same thing with core data?
1: I doubt it. Um, so they have made a lot of changes to Core Data in the last couple of years, um, making it much more powerful. This year they added CloudKit Sync again. Hopefully this time they got it exactly right, and it's going to be amazing. Um, so I, I think it's it's going to move more towards a thing where it's it's going to be a bit like. Maybe Firebase does or Realm, where you can have a local store and one in the cloud, or only local or only cloud. And I can definitely see it becoming more Swifty or more Swift friendly. But I'm not sure if they're ever going to completely move away from Core Data. But I, th- I think there's a lot more changes in the pipeline that we'll see in the next couple of years, especially to make it. Uh, Play nice with Swift UI like
4: some
1: Swift UI version of fetch results controller that would be great
4: um, yeah well it it's still yeah. seems a little too tied to uh, to objective C still and Swift UI seems to be completely moving away from anything even remotely related to objective C and so that's why I think core data like you were saying may, may move a little bit more in that direction further away from object- objective C and those those ties to that and, and more towards Swift um, and maybe even a little bit like Swift UI. I don't know.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like my argument would normally be like Apple uses core data everywhere in their own stuff. So they probably don't want to replace it, but you know, they also use UIKit everywhere and they're starting to replace that. So what's to stop them from slowly doing the same with core data at some point.
0: Yeah, it's a little hard to know what Apple's thinking unless you're inside Apple. I do think it's not that hard to um, sort of shim over Core Data so that it works with Combine. Uh, and probably I, I haven't dug into Swift UI enough to really have an intuition for it, but um, you know, Core Data Core Data implements these things in a different way than you might do in Swift, but it actually has pretty pretty rich support for uh, you know key value observing and notifications, et cetera, the kind of stuff that you could build on top of to make a um, to, to do reactive UI with core data. That said, I think, Mike, I think you're right that, you know, core data is an Objective-C framework through and through at its core. And in fact, if you wanted to write something that was exactly equivalent functionally, that, that worked the exact same way as core data, you couldn't do that in Swift right now because it makes such heavy use of the Objective-C runtime, and you know, runtime reflection and just stuff that Swift can't do yet. Um, so they they would have to you know rethink their approach if they were going to write it for Swift. It'll be interesting to see. Um, Donnie, I thought uh, I, I, there are some other changes that I, I don't remember if you mentioned. I, I'm not actually sure if you were mentioned them in your talk or not. But uh, one of those that comes to mind for me that was a change in iOS 10 is the automatic code generation stuff uh, in the X in Xcode in the Xcode model editor. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I, I briefly did mention that in my talk as well. Um, so basically, what you would have to do in the past, like pre iOS ten, is first you would write. like at least for me, the process was to first write my uh, NSManagedObject subclass. So go in, you know, write all the properties, annotate them with NSManaged, set up all the relationships there, and then make the same model in the core data model editor so you would do everything twice and currently what you can do is you can tell xcode to either generate an extension on an object so it it will implement all the core data stuff in an extension or you can tell it to just generate the whole thing for you so it'll just make the whole model file with all the relationships all the types um, and you don't have to worry about that yourself. So you only have to do the work once, which is really nice. I did find that in some cases, um, you end up with optionals in places where you would maybe not want them or expect them. So it, it's not always perfect. But it's definitely a time saver and a great starting point to begin at and then you know, adopt your code as needed.
0: Yeah. Optionals are one place where there's definitely still a mismatch in the core data and it's because the core data concept of an optional is not the same as the swift, the swift concept of an optional, I'm not exactly sure how to, if there's really any great way to fix that.
1: Well, I don't, I'm not sure if there is like, you can make everything optional on your managed object, but that doesn't mean that core data is going to accept it um, when storing your entity. So you could be like, oh, this thing is optional. You don't have to have it. But then when you call save on your managed object context, um, then basically, like, I, th- I think it's probably somewhere at the SQLite level, maybe, or possibly in, in the core data framework where it's like, no, I'm not going to save this because you're still missing some values, which can be very off-putting. If you see an optional in your code, and suddenly it's not that optional, which is also why sometimes I'm not very happy with the code generation because it makes things optional that are not really optional, which can be very confusing.
0: Yeah, you're right. And the, the reverse is also true. If you have something that is non-optional, like if, if you make it non-optional in the Core Data Model Editor or even in Swift, you know, in the, in the subclass in Swift, uh it actually technically can be nil as long as you ha- it, core, as far as core data is concerned, it it's fine if it's nil up until it's saved. That's when it needs to be non-nil. So there's just this difficult um there's just this difficulty in bridging the two concepts.
1: Yeah, I've definitely run into cases where uh especially pre-code generation, I would write my own model make something non-optional, but then accidentally make it optional in the Xcode model editor. And that works fine until it doesn't. So you would fetch an object and because everything is Objective-C, it doesn't really crash right away until you access a property and it's like, this thing is nil, and you're like, but it's not optional, how can it be nil? And then the reason is because you made it optional in your Core Data Model Editor. Too much wasted hours in that, I would say. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, another another thing that happened in iOS 10 that I also don't remember if you talked about is um, they actually added a bunch of generic, uh, genericized APIs for Core Data, like um, fetch, fetch requests that are typed with the results so that you don't have to cast the result of a fetch request back to, you know, array of whatever your managed object subclass is. Fetch results controller itself got a generic... Um, type, and there are a few other things like that. Um, Can you talk about those a little?
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, So what they did is in the past, you would have let's take um, a fetch request as an example. So in the past, you would have a fetch request and you would tell it uh, through, I believe it was with a string, actually to tell it like this is the name of the object I'm going to fetch and they would pass it predicate so like fetch me all users with this predicate where users would be a string so it's very easy to to make mistakes there and also once you would get the result you would want um, you didn't have an array of users I believe it wasn't array of any actually and you would have to cast that down into your array of users which wasn't the nicest swiftiest code to write and then in iOS 10, they made everything generic. So you can now have a uh, an NSFetch first request and tell it that the thing it's going to fetch is going to be a user object. So instead of giving it a string, you'll just give it, you, you'll, you'll specialize the fetch request with the user uh, class. So once you get all the results in, you don't have to typecast them uh, and instead, to just have your array of users ready to go without any nasty casting from any to whatever you want, so it's a lot clearer and a lot just a lot less error prone. I would say.
0: Yeah, I think that's. I think those are some pretty nice changes. Um, they also made creating objects easier.
1: Yeah, for sure. Now you can just pass the managed object context as an initial. Uh, yeah, it's an argument to the initializer for a managed object. Um, and while that is nice, it's still not what I would personally love to see, because this is where you can see that CoreData really relies on the Objective-C build time. So when you initialize your, let's say, user object, and you pass it the context, you don't have to initialize like any of its properties, even if those properties are non-optional, which can lead to very yeah, frustrating situations where you forget to set a variable and you won't notice it until you either access it or try to save your, um, save your object to Core Data.
3: So I want to talk about one element that frequently gets thrown out there as a reason that people don't like Core Data. It, it comes, especially for people that have a so-called enterprise background. And it revolves around the concept of persistent... Persistence ignorance, persistence ignorance, sorry. That's different than persistent ignorance, which I'm guilty of. But um, the, the idea is that you don't want the objects that you're using in your code to care anything about how they get stored. And if you're using core data, everything's in this managed object, which violates that principle. So core data has is typically invasive. It, it t- typically is all over your app, whether you want it to be or not. Um, it's not, it's not alone with core data. If you're using Realm, you have the same type of problems, but in the world of, you know, Swift and structs, we want everyone using structs nowadays, which has no concept of how it's stored at all. Um, like, how do you, how do you respond to that when you're trying to get people to rethink core data?
1: That's, that's an interesting question. Um, it really depends, in my opinion, on what you're using it for. Like, if, if you're working on a small app with just a couple of entities that are unlikely to ever want to move away from core data. You know, if, if those are sort of your boundaries in which you're working, I don't think it's a big problem to have core data littered all through your code. Um, what I have done in several projects is basically create a shadow struct for every managed object which means that every object is defined twice, which is not the cleanest thing to do. But what you can do then is basically write a small little database layer where your NS-managed objects live. And then as soon as you want to expose those to the outside world, you can convert them to structs, which means that you know they don't have any shared state between places. You can modify them if needed. And they won't accidentally modify anything in a different place. And then when you store them back, um, you just pass it to the database layer, and the database layer will figure out like how this struct maps to an NS managed object. Um, it, it's a lot of work to get that right. I do like it a lot because it really makes your whole app agnostic of where the objects are coming from. For all you know, it's a different data store, or it could be a network or anything. Um, but it's, it's, it's a place where I would like to see Core Data adopt something like Codable, maybe, you know, where you would be able to very easily specify an object as maybe storable or something like that. And Core Data would then just know how to handle it. And it's a matter of a protocol conformance instead of being so tightly integrated with managed objects. But like you said, it, it's the same situation, I think, for, for any persistent framework on iOS right now. You, you either go all in or you start writing some wrappers.
4: Yeah, I have to admit, I've, I've done that. I've, I've done that solution and not even necessarily with core data, because um, even, even Realm, is uh, very heavily tied to objective C and has some limitations on what can and can't be stored. And so i found myself writing uh, s- structs that um, will convert to database layer structs and, and back so that uh, uh, kind of hiding and encapsulating that layer, that database layer um, for in case I ever do want to switch out core data for some other database solution, um, you know, that's much less code that I have to rewrite. Um, and, uh, and now I've got a separation of layers and I've got these objects that can be passed in and out and through the upper layers of the UI code, for instance, and not have to have those um, so tightly coupled to the database layer. So I, I, I agree with you. I think that's a great solution.
3: And speaking of defensive core data, Realm was just bought out, right?
4: Yeah, they were by MongoDB, MongoDB, I think.
3: Okay, so they could be shut down if if the venture capitalists don't think it's a worthwhile thing to keep going, whereas Apple, unlikely to shut down core data, or at least we get a long sunset in. So there's some stability baked in.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, And also to to come back a little bit to that, um, to encapsulating your data store. one benefit that I didn't expect to find when I was writing my wrapper around CoreData is that suddenly it was much easier to write tests for certain parts of my code because I could just inject a fake database that didn't even persist anything and would just return structs instead of relying on core data or the network or anything. Um, So that was a very nice little benefit to kind of be able to drop your data store altogether and just return what you want to return in your tests.
3: Are you talking about um, setting up your mocks or whatever with like pure Swift structs or are you actually? Yeah. Okay. So you're not Yeah, so, So
1: yeah, so let's say, Yeah, so let's say you have a view controller that um, uses a database layer to retrieve its objects for a view, Um, and, you know, your unit test, you might want to drop the database and just give it back a predefined object to see if everything is set up correctly. So that's kind of nice.
3: No, that makes a lot of sense, and those are much easier to set up in your unit tests, if you're just using pure Swift and structs, things like that. Another challenge I hear with um, using core data is that it's hard to write unit tests, especially if everything's an NS-managed object. How do, you, how do you write unit tests?
1: Uh, it's actually really, I'm, I'm scared to say it, but it's, it's quite simple because you don't have to persist everything, you can use an in-memory store which means that every time you make a new instance of your core data stack it will just live in memory, so you can easily just have like tons of scratch pad empty new databases, and from there you can you know just create your managed objects as you would normally do so it's it's really not that big a deal once you get the hang of it. I would say
3: okay that makes sense that's the, that's the approach I've heard in the past, and Aaron Douglas has been on the show years ago, was the first person I heard talk about that. It's been probably four or five years since I've heard him say that, but um, that makes sense. So same type of things you do with, um, you said in your coordinator, uh, like anything else, you just it's just going into memory and not being saved to a disk.
1: Yeah, that's so, so that's what I would do if, if I wanna test whether you know, some object can be converted to a managed object, and whether it is then actually persisted in core data. Like, if that is my purpose for a test, I will use an in-memory store and go with it. Um, If I just want to test if, like, some object is attempting to talk to a database layer or is attempting to get data from a database layer, I will often just try to pull core data out of the equation entirely. And use you know a protocol like t- to hide the fact that it's core data, and then return structs from there. All right,
0: very cool. We're getting low on time. Uh, is there anything we haven't talked about that you think we we definitely should before we finish up?
1: Oh gosh, um, I don't really think so. Like, there's tons of stuff to talk about, but. I do think one one interesting thing to to call out is that a lot of people seem to want to think about Core Data as a layer on top of SQLite, so they start thinking in terms of primary keys or certain ways of shaping relationships, which can lead to a lot of problems down the line because Core Data is just not intended to be used like that. But at the same time, you can and should actually use um, compiler arguments to turn on SQLite debugging, so you can see like what SQL statements is Core Data generating for me, and are they sensible? Like, do I need to optimize something, and then take action accordingly? Like, for instance, telling Core Data to, you know, if if I do this fetch request, always fetch these other entities in the same. SQL query because I'm going to need them anyway, which is a nice optimization that uh, in my opinion is is good to know about and good to keep an eye out for uh, to see if, you know, that is going to drastically reduce the amount of time spent getting data out of SQLite.
0: That's a good tip. When I'm talking to people, I always, um that you know, have not used coordinator that new to data specifically when I'm teaching, I, I make it a point to say that SQLite is the default and by far mo- the most common backing store for Core Data, but it's not the only option, and, and, and you know you can you can actually write your own backend if you want. So uh, don't think of it as just a wrapper around SQLite because it's literally not. Um, but it but it does get used that way most of the time, and so turning on that logging is helpful. And there there actually now are some features in Core Data that only work if you're using the SQLite backend, which I think is a little bit. I don't know, philosophically that kind of bugs me, but, um, but it's, it's reality. And so, you know, there's a balance there.
1: Yeah. It always feels a little bit counterintuitive to first tell somebody to not think of Cordeta as a wrapper on SQLite and then tell them to turn on SQLite debugging. Always a bit of a weird contradiction. Right.
0: All right. Well, if there's nothing else, uh, let's get to our picks. Donnie, do you have any picks for us?
1: Uh, this is the part where I get to like shamelessly self-promote something, right? Absolutely. Nice. Uh, so, so then I really just want to promote uh, Disney Plus, um, Disney's great new streaming service that um, I kind of write code for in, uh, with the SDK that I built. So definitely check out disneyplus.com. And also check out uh, Disney's career board because we are hiring iOS developers. So those would be my two picks.
0: I was gonna say, I didn't know you had launched, but you have not launched yet, right?
1: We have not. um, I believe our countdown on the Disney Plus website says November 12th now. So keep an eye out on that countdown. And where is
3: your office located? Do you have to work where you are or is it anywhere?
1: uh so we have an office in new york we have one in san francisco and we have one in amsterdam and i believe there are some outposts in the uk there's a couple of remote people um so we are basically all across the globe right now except for in asia i don't think we have anything on the ground there yet
0: can i just say how weird it is that the simpsons are disney characters now (laughs) i know right (laughs) Uh, great, thanks for the pick. I'm actually kind of excited for Disney Plus. I think it's going to be a good streaming service, um, just because Disney has so much stuff that people want to watch. Uh, Mike, do you have any picks for us?
4: Yeah, um, so kind of, uh, kind of in the, in the same vein as um, uh, talking about uh, core data and, and well, any database layer that you end up writing, you have to write a bunch of boilerplate code for uh can, for connecting things and such um especially if you if you do like we talked about encapsulating and and basically writing a duplicate non-core data instance uh or entity that um is going to be very very close to the same thing uh, as what you've got in in that existing core data i found a really cool um templating uh uh Project I don't, I'm not sure what to call it. Anyway, it's called Sorcery, um, and it uses uh, uh, a language called Stencil to help generate Swift code. Um, and actually, recently they've updated it so that you can actually write Swift now to write to help have it generate Swift code. Um, and it's pretty cool. I'll post i I'll make sure the link gets posted in there for it. But it's and it's open source. Um, you can install it using Brew, um, and very handy for generating um, code based on other code. Uh, I I could spend several hours talking about that. (laughs) just in itself. We can have another session on that. But um, yeah, I I highly recommend it. I've used it for a number of projects, including um, dealing with core data as well as with Realm. I found it very useful.
3: So I think that tools by J.P. Samard, who's been on the show, it was probably a few years ago but we talk about it a little bit. So if anyone wants to learn more about it, check out the archives. Sorcery is actually not by JP. Uh, he Maybe he's working
0: on it now. It's by, I don't know how you say his name because unfortunately I don't pronounce Polish. I think he's Polish. Krzysztof um, Sabwaki, That's the best I can do. Uh, and he's a super, super smart guy. He also made a, before Sorcery, he made a, um Objective-C Playgrounds, which was cool.
3: Okay, I stand corrected. JP used Source Kitten, which is based on sorcery, but also cool. And in the archives.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. JP is Source Kitten. Uh great. Thanks, Mike. Um James, you said you want us to skip you? Yep, I'm pickless today. <laughs> okay. All right. So I have one pick. Uh And my pick is um, actually a hardware related pick. I've been doing some hardware design again uh, recently, and that is Eagle PCB, which is uh, if you've done any hardware design, specifically printed circuit board design, you probably already know about it. It was acquired by Autodesk a couple of years ago. Um, I was pretty worried about that acquisition, but they've actually made it significantly better and I'm very happy with it. Um, It is by far the cheapest way to get into printed circuit board design. So if you want to, you know, even just start dabbling with hardware and design your own circuit boards. Uh, Eagle, well, I won't say it makes it dead simple to do. Um, It makes it much more approachable than it has been in the past because you don't have to pay thousands of dollars and there's just a wealth of YouTube tutorials, et cetera, et cetera, about how to use it and a huge community around it. So that's my pick, Eagle PCB. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Donnie. If people want to... Uh, you know, get in touch with you. What's the best way to find you?
1: Probably just find me on Twitter.
0: And how can one do that? We'll put a link in the show notes, but
1: uh, twitter.com slash Donnie Walls. Could it be more simple?
0: Okay, and Walls is W A L S, so like Walls, but only with uh, with only one L. Yes. We will put a link to your talk at TriSwift in the show notes. Uh, and with that, thanks for being on, and we'll, we'll see everyone next week.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit
1: cachefl to learn more.